0: You know, I was, I was thinking to myself, which is something I do a lot of, and I'm not gonna tell you what I was thinking, uh, other than to say, I'm, I'm sure I'm not unique in thinking to myself. You, you probably all do it. There's, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, maybe to the level that I do it, because I, Linda will say, what are you thinking? Because I, apparently I don't express myself enough. And uh, she'd be curious what's going on inside this mind. Only a wife would do that. Uh, Jesus fit us together really well. Um, but those those inner thoughts, for me at least, usually fit one of three categories. Uh, the first is the one, not to brag about it, but it's prayer. Uh, I'll be thinking thoughts, and that leads me to having conversations with God. Uh, usually because those those thoughts are deeper ones that I may be struggling with an issue or... Uh, just being overjoyed with something. And they don't always have to be expressed out loud. Um, But then as you contemplate them, you you just reach out to the Lord and a conversation ensues. Second group would be the imaginary conversations. These aren't as good as prayers. These are the, uh, I was offended by somebody or or somebody really burned me in an argument. And the inner thoughts are, you know what I should have said? I should have come back at them with this. Or, or I'll be thinking something that I shouldn't be thinking, some evil thought about somebody. So I don't say it, but I do have that little internal conversation of what it could have looked like. And the older I got, the more I knew I should shut my mouth on those. And then there's the calculating, and I don't mean that negatively. It's another way is just planning. You know, you, you go through something in your head, you take all the steps before you start verbalizing it. And, and I'm one who will really carry that up to a long way. Other people I know will be speaking almost as fast as they're thinking. And if I try to do that, my thoughts get jumbled. I start saying things in, in this direction, but I intend to go in this direction. So I, I really want to know where I'm heading, what path I'm on before I start speaking the thoughts. Well, that last one, the planning one, isn't as... like the first two, but the first two, uh, the the prayer thoughts and the imaginary conversations are usually dealing with some sort of problem or turmoil. And there's a couple of reasons to leave those thoughts inside for a little while. One of them might be, who am I going to say this to? You know, can I I trust this person? So you're making a little checklist that says, okay, this person's trustworthy to share the thoughts. The second one is, being a problem, it, it tends to be a heart issue, and I'm not too quick at opening my heart to other people. So there might be another reason that things don't come out so fast with me. Um, those, those inner thoughts that are the, the real heart issue ones become very emotional. So even though I may choose not to express the thought in words, I might express it in actions. I think the most obvious one is if I'm embarrassed, my face turns red. I don't have to tell you I'm embarrassed. You could read it on my face. I used to work with a fella that, uh, well, he was always just the, the meanest guy at work. I mean, he, he would uh, criticize everything. He'd get mad at the drop of a hat and his son ended up working for us and I didn't know in his family the, the son, and his brother had a word for their dad when he'd get angry. And the man was bald, so it helped. Uh, his, not face would just get red, but his, his head, the entire head. And the kids had the term for when he was mad, it's like, well, here comes bloodhead. And because it was just so expressive. So your inner thoughts can become outer thoughts in your actions. And, and we should not judge or condemn all of our inner thoughts. In fact, judging isn't something we really need to be doing at all. Um, so I should say we, we need not fight having inner thoughts. Uh, what I would like to do is admit that inner thoughts and our heart condition are almost synonymous. They, they just are so related. And we're going to see a lot of that today in this passage. Um, the, the inner thoughts uh, become outward things very quickly, especially around Jesus. In one character, the inner thoughts will be revealed as being just flat out wrong. And in the other character, the inner thoughts are absolutely exposed in the person's actions. So let me read aloud Luke seven, thirty-six through fifty. Um, if you're able, out of reference to the word, you might stand. It's not required. Um, God's gonna know that it's his word anyway. So Uh, starting with verse 36 of Luke 7. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with them began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Lord Father, we, we ask you to reveal the, the very point of this passage to us. We, we want our hearts to be changed and we want them to be changed in ways that are more glorifying to you. Lord, as we study this passage and examine our own hearts, we pray that the condition would be one that seeks you, chases you, Lord. Uh, So we ask the Holy Spirit would guide me in my speech and the people in this building with their ears that the right things would be said and heard uh, to your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You know, as I, as I get into the details of this passage, I want to mention that I don't regard this story and the ones that are usually referenced uh, in the other gospels to be the same story, even though they're referenced. You know, Matthew 26, six through 12, Mark 14, three through nine, and John 12, one through eight. Those three are incredible, incredibly similar, but not necessarily to this story. What is similar is that Jesus is anointed with expensive perfume by a woman at the home of somebody named Simon. That's true in the other Gospels, and it's true in this Luke Gospel, or the uh, the message in Luke. But the account of what is happening at Simon the leper, of the other three Gospels, and this one at Simon the Pharisee, there's too many things that don't match up for me. Um, Pharisees and lepers don't come together in the same room. So to have the two stories be the same, either the the Pharisee Simon the Pharisee might later become known as Simon the leper. That could be one way you could explain it, um, but I don't think it fits the context. Couple of problems is the the scene in the other three Gospels happens in Bethany, in front of disciples. This scene scene is in Galilee, probably Capernaum, but one of the towns near Capernaum, uh, certainly, uh, and no disciple is mentioned as being there. So there, there's a little bit of a mix there. In the in the other Gospels, it's um, an argument amongst the disciples with Jesus of, hey, we ought to stop this woman from using this really expensive perfume to anoint your head. And Jesus responds to them, and and they're arguing about it because it's very expensive and they could use the money better for the poor rather than this anointing. And Jesus is telling them, you know, you're always going to have the poor, but you're not always going to have me. Let this woman continue on because she's doing it for my burial. In Luke, this is a little too early to be concerning with the burial. To begin with, his head is not anointed, and it's just the, the direction of the passage seems to be different. Those other three are talking about the preparation of a king for a burial, and this is not that theme. Um, I suppose you could argue that, yeah, but Kelly, all the gospels are going to take a little different spin on things to emphasize a particular point. But I don't think Luke, especially as a physician, a scientist, is going to go so far off the rails to change the story that much to make his point of emphasis. I bring all this up because you might be very familiar with the other, other passages and maybe even think that this one's one of those. But if I don't state that up front, then you might wonder why am I using such a different path on this Luke passage than I would if I were preaching any of those other three. So all the things that you know about those other passages just try and set them aside for this sermon and, and listen to this and if if you care to go back and say, "No, Kelly, you're wrong." That's absolutely fine. I don't think I am, and I I think I'll show you through this. So what is the, the, the point of Luke's passage? What is he trying to emphasize? And I think it's this, that the hearts of the forgiven belong to Jesus. I'll say that again. The hearts of the forgiven belong to Jesus. It's a matter of the heart, It's a matter of possession, and it's a matter of forgiveness. You know, I'd like to just comment through the details of the passage in the same order as they're presented. Um, We see an invitation to a meal. We see the surprising behavior of a woman, a judgment by a Pharisee, and a teaching by Jesus. And it's all wrapped up to show us the results of that as we make it through the passage. So let's just start out with verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. The two interesting things to me are, why did this happen? And why did Jesus respond the way he did? What was the purpose of the invitation? It wasn't that Jesus was a real popular guy around town and the Pharisees said, hey, you know, we've been pals forever. Why don't you come watch the Super Bowl with me and we'll recline at the table. It was more of either um, an honest seeking of Jesus, who Jesus is by this Pharisee, and that could be. Or it could be that the Pharisee was Looking to convict Jesus of something, not necessarily in a trial, but to, to set up Jesus for um, l- later uh, using it against whatever he might do, using it against him. Maybe he'll blaspheme himself. Uh, you know, we saw just a little while ago in Luke 7 29 and 30. Uh, Well, I'll just read 30. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So this invitation could be from one of those Pharisees mentioned. And you'll see in the last couple of verses, or maybe you did notice, uh, there's other people at the table. And they might have been those lawyers. uh, They might have been other Pharisees. They might have been just people that were important in the, the area. Um, I think it is very likely based on what Simon had to say later or had an inner thought of later, that it's, it's the one about, we want to doubt who this is and I, I need evidence to help me do that. Um, so let's continue through the passage. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So the woman of the city, a sinner. Most times I've read that, I thought, yep, she's a prostitute and and this is it. But you know, it doesn't say that. There is something about the writing of the time, even biblical writing that you would refer to a prostitute as a woman of the city, a sinner. Yeah. So, yeah, I could play that. I could, you want to claim she's a prostitute, that's fine. Could have been some other sin. I mean, maybe she was just really out there, not trying to hide her sin in any way, and the, the whole city knew it. And I don't think the point really is what was the, the woman's sin or sins, just that she was a sinner and well-known as a sinner the town knew her as a sinner. And maybe the most important thing is she knew she was a sinner. And upon learning that Jesus was going to be there, she shows up with this alabaster uh, flask of ointment. Uh, She came prepared. And verse 38 is introducing that she's standing at his feet and if, if you don't already know, and I think King James will even say that Jesus sat with them. Well, there, it wasn't of the time to sit down to a meal. Uh, the, the painting of the Last Supper has those, uh, all the people, the disciples and Jesus, sitting at this long table. That was all very unlikely. More likely, they'd be reclined. They'd be, be laid out, propped up on their left elbow, reaching for food with their right hand um, reclined at the table is not like totem being reclined next to Emma, or did I say Toby totem? Yeah. Um, no, that your head is close to the table, and then you're extended out, your feet being the furthest thing from the table of your body. And then everybody would be that way. And and you'd be looking at the back of the head of the person in front of you. The person behind you is looking at the back of your head. You have to turn to, to see certain things. And it's not just Jesus and the Pharisee at this table. Later we find out there's, there's others. And note the emotion that is uh, happening. I mean, she's... She's standing at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Um, quick thing I noticed was she got the order right. She washed his feet first, then she kissed him. <laughs> you know, I, I'd shudder to think of, I, I wouldn't do either one. I mean, but, but yeah, they, they, she got it right. Um, would it have been embarrassing? I think so. I mean, to have all this lavish affection poured on you in front of a bunch of other people. Um, Jesus wasn't embarrassed. He, he knew it was going to happen. He had a purpose for the whole scene. Um, but the the emotions of, of weeping, it, it points to her humility. She'll do this in front of everybody. She's not even invited to the party. She shows up. I'm not sure why she didn't get kicked out, um, but she didn't. There's a certain amount of worship that goes with it. I mean, she really, she knew Jesus was coming and she showed up. It's kind of interesting when heard about the invitation and then showed up and waited for these people to arrive and saw how Jesus was be treat- being treated and went in to, to do things. It could be that he was already there and then she comes in. But what we do know is she is standing at his feet, it says behind him. So uh, I have in my head that the Simon the Pharisee is behind Jesus. So she'd be standing at the feet, behind Jesus's feet, but in front of the Pharisees. He could see what the heck is happening very easily. Everybody could. Um, and in verse 39, the Pharisee speaks to himself. It says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would, not have, or he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. It's, it's an inner thought. He said to himself, So this is one of those inner thoughts that he wasn't ready to put out publicly. He was just thinking it. Leads a little bit to that motive that we wondered in the beginning. Oh, he's trying to figure out if this guy's a prophet or not. Well, he was wrong. Jesus is a prophet, yes, but he's so much more than a prophet. The other thing that he gets wrong is who Jesus is, he is doing exactly what he would do. He is letting this happen, regardless of a sinner. He came for sinners. It's his purpose. He is letting this happen, and he's letting it happen publicly because he wants to make a point, and he's going to make it very soon. So Jesus turns his attention to Simon, and he says, and it says, and answering him, Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And then Simon answered, Say it, teacher. It's so cool. I mean, was Jesus a mind reader? I'm going to say no. Was he a heart reader? Absolutely. He read what was in Simon's heart, and that's what needed to be addressed. And he says that he wants to. He wants to say something to him, and then engaging Simon in such a way, he got the invitation back. Yeah, go ahead, say it, teacher. So this dialogue is down and personal right away. And he asks, or, well, I'll just read it again, what this little story, the point of being forgiveness is. And it says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And then Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. The I suppose clause to me, two things. One is, what are you trying to get away with here, Simon? Simon. I mean, you know what the answer is. You even gave the answer. But you want to throw in this little, I suppose, clause as though you weren't participating. I think he's reading that Jesus is about to nail me for something here, and I don't really want to be part of it. And I use this little, well, I suppose, maybe it's this one. Nah. And Jesus probably could have been very sarcastic about it. I would have been. I mean, it's like really, Simon? I suppose? Like, of course that's what it is. And Jesus just simply says, you've judged rightly. So he's already engaged Simon with leading him into the question. Simon accepted and told him, hey, say it, teacher. He gives him the story, and I think Simon is starting to realize uh, that he's on the hook here. And Jesus is still being kind enough to keep the engagement going. So then he then he turns to the woman. And he doesn't turn to the woman to talk to the woman. He turns to the woman to bring his attention. What was it the thing when I was a kid? It was a candid camera. And they had the, they set up the candid camera with the guy just standing on the street corner in a big city looking up. And then they caught all the people that walked by, would walk by, see the person looking up, and they'd look up to see what was going on. It's that sort of thing. You you could draw your attention to something just by looking at it. And Jesus wants to say, I'm going to be talking about this woman. I'm going to look at her so you know I'm talking about this woman, but I'm still talking to you. Okay? And basically, he he gives it to Simon. Uh, He gives Simon all the things that he should have been doing. He tells Simon, hey, this, this is what custom would have. I would come in your house, you'd treat me like a guest, you'd anoint my head, you'd give me a kiss. All the things that should be done, you didn't do, but she is doing. She's expressing her heart condition above and beyond your heart condition, Simon. The the tough one comes next. After saying all those things about, you know, you didn't anoint my head, she did. You didn't kiss my, or wash my feet, she did. Comes verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. I spent most of my time on this passage on that verse because I think there is a huge struggle, something I had to answer for myself before I could talk to you all about it. And I'm glad, I I think we're supposed to struggle with Scripture, and I think we're supposed to seek um, where our struggles end up leading us. We're supposed to seek what God intends for us in those things, And, and here's my struggle. It sounds like works. It sounds like because she loved me much, I'm forgiving her sins. Oh, is that all I have to do? If I love Jesus a lot, then my sins are gonna be forgiven. But that's not what it's saying. And the, the struggle with it is every, every vehicle that I use to explain it still sounded like works to me until I finally worked it out. Um, And the way I worked it out was looking at a couple of things, really. There's, There's two directions that I went, both in support of it's not works. First off, when he said this, he wasn't talking to her. He was talking to Simon. And the point of talking to Simon, the point he wanted to make was that her actions... Are the 500 denarii thing. She is very much a sinner. And she came to me looking for forgiveness of those sins. Simon, you don't seem to give a squat. You think your sins are small, and you don't think you need forgiveness at all. You're not showing any love for me. And the interesting thing about the story, no matter how big, it could have been 5,000 times bigger debt that was forgiven than the smallest debt. And it could have been five pennies instead of 50 denarii. And I don't know how to translate 50 denarii. Maybe it is five pennies. But the point is, they both needed forgiveness and he did forgive the debt of both. No matter how big or small the debt The debt was forgiven. And Jesus is saying the same thing about the sins. No matter how big or how small, you can't pay that debt. I can forgive the debt. So keeping that in mind, regardless of the Pharisees' small sins, he too was going to need to love Jesus for this forgiveness, and it, it didn't happen. The second thing I'll do is talk about the order of love and I'll borrow the language from John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What it does not say is the world so loved God, like this woman so loving Jesus, the world so loved God that he gave his only son, he gave Jesus to us because we really loved God. Uh Uh-uh, it's the other way around. God loves first we respond to that love. This woman responded. She showed up knowing or at least having a huge suspicion of who Jesus is. She couldn't wait to get to this dinner. She couldn't not only couldn't wait to get there, she knew to worship the man that she was showing up for. She had this expression of love that came from the invitation to her that came first then she responds, like we have to respond to Jesus, then the forgiveness came. Also pay attention to the last words of the the passage. When When Jesus is finally talking directly to her, he's saying your sins are forgiven and your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So he makes it clear. He's not cleaning up what he had said previously to Simon, what he said to Simon is for Simon. What he says in those verses is for her. An omniscient God doesn't have to clean up his speak. He, he says what he says because he means what he says, and he intended what he says. He's, he's not human. He's not going to, well, I guess in some sense he's human, but he, he's always, always God, and he's not going to make that mistake of, Oh, you know what I should have said? Because he already knows this timeline. He knows what he meant to say, and he did. Yep, let's just move to verse 48. (laughs) And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Jesus changes the scene. He is now talking to the woman. And he already forgave her sins before he said that. I want you to take note of that. So when you know your sins are forgiven, they that already happened. It wasn't the moment of your realizing that they were forgiven. He did forgive. It's great you finally realize it, but the the point is that Like this woman, it wasn't him saying your sins are forgiven that forgave her. He had already done that because he told Simon that he had. So that that order is, is kind of an important thing. But now instead of what he had done within earshot of her, I mean, she's standing right there. Simon is no closer than she is. So she would have heard that her sins are forgiven, but Jesus wants to make it personal. And he says to her, and not just looking at her to draw attention, but literally says to her, your sins are forgiven. And and this is Jesus loving. And you, you think that through. So he loves first. He loves the sinner. That attracts the sinner who starts showing him love with all this this weeping and ointment and stuff. And then he tells her your sins are forgiven, the next act of love. So it just builds upon itself. And, and honestly, it's a bit romantic. I mean, it, it's not romantic love like I want to marry Jesus, but it is the kind of love that is forever and you know, what, what comes eternal comes huge. And we just have to grab that and, and own it that we're going to keep reciprocating. He, he loves us. We love him back. He forgives us. We love him more. By loving him more, we understand who he is more, which causes a bigger love. And it just keeps going. And I, it's going to keep going for me and for all of you through eternity. It's romantic. And then in verse 49, we have confirmation that other people were invited. And they aren't the disciples, like in the other three gospels. They were of the Pharisee ilk. I don't know if they were Pharisees, they might be lawyers, they might just be important people uh, around Galilee. Um, They're definitely people in the know because they all know that this woman was a sinner. And they ask a question that admits a certain amount of belief of what's going on. They ask the question as if, accept, as if accepting that the sins were forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? You know, there's a couple of points to that word even, when it's even forgives sins. One of them is they didn't ask who is this who thinks he can forgive sins? They simply ask who is this that even forgives sins? So they're confessing he forgives sins. These sins of this woman really are forgiven. I mean it's very subtle but it's there. The other part of the word even is when you got even it's like other than this he even does this. So in our case, the miracles that this guy's running around town doing, even beyond that, he forgives sins. The other miracles around town were you had the centurion's servant who was healed of whatever sickness, the, whatever ailment he had. You had in the town of Name the uh, woman, the, the, the widowed woman who lost her son, but Jesus revives the son and, and he's alive again. And then you got this forgiveness would be the third sin. And I think the greatest sin, or sin, uh, miracle. This third miracle is the salvation of this woman. Not because of who she is, but because of who Jesus is. Look, the, the first, the, the resurrected son of the widow, he's gonna die again. You know, it wasn't a forever thing. The centurion's servant, who was sick and healed, I don't know if he'll get sick again, but he's, he's out there with the rest of the world to get whatever elements are possible, and he could get sick again. He's certainly going to die. Uh, that, that's just part of uh, the circle of life. But this miracle, this salvation is forever. And it's what makes it the biggest. It's a forever deal. On the heels of the gathering's wonderment, he says to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. And I think we have the, other than Jesus being one of the characters, we had the woman who was the sinner, and Jesus dealt with her. And then we have the Pharisee Simon, and Jesus deals with him. And I didn't really think of it as this, but you really have a third group. Everybody else who was at the table, all the witnesses, they're also being responded to. So they ask the question, who is this? Who even forgives sins? Could have been left as a rhetorical question, but Jesus doesn't. Right on the heels of them asking this question, which was audible, he didn't read their hearts on this one but they expose their hearts in the question. And he says to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. It's the statement of, yeah, I can even forgive sins. I'm that, I have that authority to do. So go woman, you're gonna be okay. And there's three things that I I wanna point out about that that last thing, saying to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. I think it's said for the sake of not just the woman, but all those who just asked the question. Yes, I have the authority to even forgive sins. In fact, it's my purpose. Secondly, to the woman, Jesus is saying, it is not just in my presence, but as you go forward, realize your sins are forgiven. He isn't dismissing her rudely as in, now go, get, get out of here. We're you've had your time, move on. No, it's, it's quite the contrary. He is saying, I have given you what you came for. Just as you knew I could, and now you can go in peace. It's a beautiful scene. And the final thing I'd like to say about that verse is, not only it's the third miracle of the chapter, but it, that it is the greatest the salvation for our sins is greater than all the miracles that Jesus performed. They all had their purpose. They all pointed to him. But the only one that is everlasting and eternal in relation to us is this forgiveness of sins that's offered to us. So the takeaways, you know, some are simple and and some are really deep. Throughout the passage, Jesus is reading hearts. He knows Simon and the Pharisee. He knows Simon the Pharisee's heart at the invitation, but decides to use it for his own purposes, regardless of what the um, purpose that the Pharisee believed it would be. You know, finding out if he's a prophet or not. Jesus accepted the invitation for his purpose. Uh, Another one, he knows the sinning woman's heart, and it is confirmed in her actions. He knew the heart before she started doing all these things, but everybody knows her heart now because she did all those things. It would have been lost on Simon if Jesus didn't explain it, um, but it was out there for everybody to see. And the good evidence that everybody saw that were these witnesses, the other people at table that knew he even forgives sins. He knows another thing about the woman's heart, and that is she needs reassuring so she's not lost in Jesus dealing with Simon. You know, he, he would say things about the woman within her earshot, but he's talking to Simon and Jesus, knowing her heart, just sensed, I need to tell you directly and personally, your sins are forgiven. So he read her heart there. He knows the condition of Simon's heart <coughs> in those unspoken thoughts. that uh, questions who Jesus is. And Jesus admonishes him for it. I mean, not only just admonishes him, but does it publicly, does it in front of quite a few people. So he's reading and responding to that heart. And finally, he deals with the wonderment of the hearts of the witnesses. He could have been less clear and left their question rhetorical, but he responded to the question with, yep, her faith has saved her. Her faith in who? Her faith in Jesus. I mean, she showed up expecting this, and Jesus came through on it. In each case, Jesus not only knows the hearts of the people, but he also responds to them. And what does that say to us? Jesus knows the hearts of every one of you in this room, everyone in this city, everyone in this county and beyond. Jesus knows our hearts. What was the ultimate response by God to the hearts of the entire world, the John three sixteen thing? He so loves us that he gave us Jesus. But Jesus loving us is not what makes us his possession. What does? The same as what saved the woman, her faith, her belief that Jesus could. Her faith of Jesus' authority was no smaller than that of the faith of the centurion. This is the faith of all who come to Jesus the belief that he is who he is, and that he not only has the standing to forgive sins, but does so for the believer, those that come to him, that give him his, their hearts. And that faith that leads to salvation produces a love for him that is reciprocal to his love. That love isn't intended for inner thoughts. While it's a love that's deep in our hearts, it's supposed to be seen. Like that woman of the passage, our love will flow out of us in tangible ways. Our actions will be different than hers, but our motivation will not. It'll be the same. Our love will be seen in our service to him. It'll be about him. We won't be at his feet. We won't be wiping the tears off of his feet our tears off of his feet, with our hair, but we will be in service to him. See it with the worship team that sings, that Wendy that picks songs that were directly related to this. Praise God how that works, I don't know. She's good, that's how. Um, it could be that decorating this place for Christmas hanging out late on a Sunday when maybe everybody else would rather be at a football game or something. No, we come together in service of Christ. Sometimes it appears as serving one another, but it's being, we are serving Christ when we do this. It'll be seen in our service. John six thirty seven says, all the Father gives me, Father gives me, Will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's us. The Father gives us to Jesus. That's a possession thing. We are His possession that He's not casting out. Isn't the woman who was a sinner one who came to Him? When we go to Jesus, aren't we being given to Him by the Father? And when our hearts are turned by Him, as the woman's was, we too become his possession. As believers, our hearts truthfully, joyfully, and thankfully belong to Jesus. So let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would look at our heart condition and if it's not where it's supposed to be, that you would change it. We pray, Lord, that our hearts would always be chasing Jesus, that we would come to him, that it wouldn't be just for the moment of salvation, be be all of our moments, all of our struggles, all of our joy, all of our thankfulness, that our hearts would be steered toward you, Lord. We pray that we can return your love. There's no way we could do it in an equal measure. But Lord, our motivation, like the woman's center, could be the same, that we want to return it with more affection than it was given. Though that's impossible, we know, Lord, it is not impossible for us to have that desire. Lord, we are so thankful to belong to you, to be your possession in Christ. Amen.